We're going to read a few verses from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's hear the word of God from verse 1, reading, of course, from the authorized version. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become of saints, neither foolish filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Got something to show the boys and girls, right? Remember we've been talking about Sally the cow, all right? Well, we'll get her back out of her special little place. Here she's here, all right? Now, remember what we have said, all right? Let's think of these few thoughts, and we'll do a re quick recap. Remember we said there's 27 references in the Bible to the word cow. 20 of them have the old spelling of kine, K-I-N-E, and seven have got C-O-W. That's 27 references, and the Bible has a lot to say about them. And here's one of the references in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and it says this. And the men did so, and took two milk kine, tied them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. So we're going to think about milk cow in a little moment. We talked about the breed of the cow, and we said there was 34 um, different breeds of milk cows in the United Kingdom. And whether they're all different sizes and different shapes and different colors, they've all got one thing in common, they're cows. Cows are an animal made and designed by God. And remember, you too are made and designed by God, and you've been made in God's image. 
We, we also thought about the birth of the cow, and we talked about the handbook that the farmer uses, and he records all the details about the birth of the cow. And God is the book of life, and he has recorded your details in that book. And of course, there's the Lamb's book of life, and you need to make sure that your name is also in the Lamb's book of life. We talked about the bleating of the cow, and remember, here's a picture in Beth Shemesh, where the ark of God has been captured by the Philistines and they want to send it back uh, because a lot of things have happened in their land uh, because of the ark of the covenant and they put it on a cart, the wrong way to uh, send it forth, but they put it on a cart and they put in some golden mice along with it. They get two milk cows hitched up to this cart, and these um, uh, milk cows go all the way bleating and lowing, making a racket uh, until they reach Beth Shemesh in the uh, land of Israel. Then we talked about the behavior of the cows. I told you that cows, of course, can be silly. If you leave a gate open, they'll go out through it. If you don't put a string up, they'll go out through it. If there's a hole in the hedge, you can be sure that they will go out through it. And of course, we are silly as well, unaware of our danger, unaware of our lost condition. Cows at times can be sensible. If there's a very bad storm coming, you'll see them lying at the root of the hedge for shelter, or they're all gathered around the gate, and they'll make a loud noise, and they'll want to get into the sea safety and protection of the cow shed. We talked about cows being submissive as well. And of course, for farmers who take cows to special shows, uh, they have to use a halter, putting it around its ears and its nose just to control the animal. And, and, that, and in that way, the animal has been submissive. And when we're joined to God and God's salvation through faith in Christ, then we become submissive unto God, uh, acknowledging him to be our master as well as controller. Now, I want to think of one final thing about the cow. Okay, so we've learned about the breed, the birth, we've learned about the bleeding, we've learned about the behavior. But here's one special thing, young people, boys and girls. What is the benefit of having cows? What do cows give us? Well, let me bring some things out of the bag. All right. Milk. I'm sure you all love milk. Well, where does milk come from? It comes from cows. And cows, of course, can give lots of milk. I know some cows in Ferndale that could give maybe up to 60, 70 liters of milk a day. So could you imagine if I lined up the pulpit with 60 or 70 of these one liter uh, things of milk? You would say, wow, that's a lot. And I'm telling you, Sally, the cow has produced that. But not only do we get um, uh, milk, but there's another thing that the cow gives us, and that's meat. Now, I wanted to bring some steak this morning and show you it, but I wasn't allowed in case it would go off in the two hours that we're in church. But be assured that cows also give us meat. But there's another thing that cows give us, and um, I'll tell you what it is. Oh, there's the meat there. Oh, thank you, Charlene. Okay, just so we get this in camera. Oh, right, this is Armstrong's finest beef burgers. And of course, um, you'll get some of these if you ever go to McDonald's. Another thing cows give us, and I've took my belt off, is leather. Where does leather come from? Well, well, it comes from the cow. All right? So I want you to think of that as well. Um, I've got something else in the bag. Right? This is something else that comes from the cow. Cheese. 
many children love cheese? Dairy Lee cheese. Sure, that's a favorite of all boys and girls. Well, well, it comes from the cow. All right. And how many people love cream? Because remember, this is a, a byproduct of the milk. And here's some cream in a can that you can put on to your jelly or put on to your um, apple tart. All right. Now, isn't that interesting? But also, cows provide glue. Do you know that cows provide glue? The hoofs of the cow are very hard. And they discovered if they boil them down, it turns into a gluey liquid. And that was how they developed and discovered glue. And you see the very horns of the cow that they cut off? They are used to make handles for walking sticks and other ornaments, etc. So all of these things, do you think of this here? Whether it's milk or whether it's meat, cheese, cream, glue, um, leather, all of these things come from the cow. And that makes the cow very, very special, doesn't it? And I was thinking, the psalmist said, he, not speaking of God, daily loads us with benefits. And our God looks upon us as very special creatures. And he benefits us with many, many wonderful things. Health and strength. He balances us with breath. He balances us with putting us into a family. He balances us with a, with a church and a Bible. But most of all, he benefits us because he gave us his son. Because in Jesus Christ, there's many wonderful spiritual blessings. I wonder this morning, are you in Christ? And if you realized how good God is, if God gives us this special animal, the cow, with all of these unique benefits coming from it, then what a wonderful God we have. Now, my text today is taken from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. It reads as follows, And walk in love as Christ also have loved us and have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, I've entitled this message, The Christians Walk in Love. Last Thursday, we were having a little walk down to the Cargarete Rope Bridge in the company of Joanna and one of her friends from the United States of America. I was thinking as I took each step, especially the most difficult part of the path, the steps down, I didn't count them, but I was thinking of the words that just come into my mind, walk in love. Now, I had been praying for the leading of the Lord and um, asking the Lord to guide us because we're not dealing with Colossians for, for a message for today. And those three words, walk in love, pressed themselves upon the mind. And whenever I was praying in my spirit uh, and praying in the bedroom, uh, then I was thinking of these words. It kept pressing itself upon me, walk in love. So hence the title, the Christian's Walk in love. Now, the Apostle Paul, having instructed the believers at Ephesus how we're to put off and put away the old way of life and put on the new man in Christ, you can read about that in Ephesians chapter 4, sums it all up in a very 
powerful and yet comprehensive command. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Be ye therefore followers of God. The word followers can be translated imitators. Literally, we are to copy God. Now, what does that mean? He is specifically thinking of God's communicable attributes. Attributes that have to do with aspects of his moral character. And have those aspects of God's moral character reproduced in us. So he's thinking of forgiveness, for example. The true Christian is not only forgiven all his sins, past, present, and future. And enjoys a full and free and forever pardon of all of those sins. But the true Christian, having been forgiven his sins, will also have a forgiving spirit. The true Christian will also be kind and generous because God is kind and generous and benevolent. The true Christian will also strive to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Remember, we're called to a life of holiness. Not perfectly, but purposefully, persistently, perseveringly. The true Christian will be faithful. Why? Because God is faithful. Faithfulness is one of God's communicable attributes. And the true Christian will also be loving. Because love is among these communicable attributes. The Bible teaches that God is love. Now look at our text. It says, and walk in love. So he's teaching us, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. You and I have been called to be imitators of God as dear children and we're to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and gave himself for us. Did you know that this verse, Ephesians 5 and 2, serves to introduce the next subject? I'm going to call it the perversion of God's love. Or we could call it the maze of moral purity. You see, it contrasts God's way of love with the world's way, not of love, but of lust. And it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, here's Paul's supreme argument. The highest level of all doctrine and Christian practice is this ultimate ideal. Here's the principle that governs the whole of the Christian life. If I was to sum up the Christian life this morning, young people, it would be this. It's summed up as a life of imitating God as beloved children. As we walk in love. Now where do we see the love of God most clearly demonstrated? The answer's at the cross. And walk in love. How? Look at the text. As Christ also have loved us. And has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. For a sweet smelling savour. Once you discover and see the truth that you're in Christ and you realize in Christ what Christ did for you at the cross, then you'll begin to realize and grasp and understand that the love of God is clearly revealed at Mount Calvary. Young people, Calvary 
is the greatest demonstration of God's love. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for us. Romans 5 and 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once we see what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and went through for us at the cross, all for this end, that every one of his dear children will be imitators of him and walk in love. Now, it's very interesting that if you read Ephesians as a book at one sitting, six short chapters, the theme of love is referenced 22 times. Now, if you count the verses I've counted them, there's 155. That is, out of the 155 verses, 22 of those verses have the dominant theme of love. Think of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, for example. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Here's another reference. Ephesians 1 and 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Here's another reference, Ephesians chapter 3 and 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. The word rooted in love means you've got to think about a plant. Think about the, the realm of horticulture, where the plants get nourishment from. They get the nourishment from the soil. And just as the plant's roots draws the goodness um, through their root system uh, right up into the very plant itself. So we who are planted in Christ and found that we're rooted in him, we, we uh, draw um, our, our, our strength and our help even from him. The love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. And then we are to, to grow strong in him. We, we are uh, drawing up from the realm of love all that's found in Christ. In 3.17, he mentions not only rooted in love, but he says, and grounded in love. There's a different picture. There's the realm of architecture. Not only are we sustained by being found in Christ and rooted in love, but we're granted stability and strength. Because we're grounded in that love. Now, now, get the picture. He hasn't just called the Christians there in Ephesus to be imitators of God. He emphasizes, as he does that, one particular aspect. Now, here's only one of the communicable attributes of God. The theme of love. And he adds this, having called them, commanded them, followers of God as dear children. He says, and walk in love. How? As Christ also have loved us. In other words, the conduct of our love will be seen in our words, in our actions, in our deeds. Paul's putting it in the form of a very comprehensive command. Walk in love. It's not natural to us. It's not something we do by our own strength or power. 
This is the conduct of the lifestyle because of who we are. We are dear children of God. And as dear children of God, we're to be imitators of God and we're to walk in love. Now, how can the Christian walk in love? That's what we're thinking about this morning. Very quickly, just a few thoughts. Think of the foundation of the Christian's walk in love. I've already emphasized, we're told, to be followers of God as dear children. The word is imitators. We're to copy God. In other words, we have to be dear children with the desire to be imitators of God or to be followers of God, to be able to walk in love. If you think of the connection, be there for be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. The word and is very important. It's the joining word. It's the connection. And in order to do this, we must be one of his dear children. And you only become one of his dear children by the new birth. Remember the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. And we become his dear children because we were adopted into God's family, having been found in Christ. If you link it up with Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, remember he's already taught us, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Well, who's the beloved? The Lord Jesus. My beloved is mine and I am his, the bride said in the Song of Solomon. It's a reference to Christ. And who's the one doing the loving? Well, it's the Father. Remember, the Father loved the Son long before the foundation of the world. The Father's loved the Son from all eternity. In John chapter 17 and in the verse uh, 24, uh, in his high priestly prayer, uh, when the Lord Jesus prayed, he said this, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world." Here's the Lord Jesus in prayer to his father. And he's saying, Father, you've loved me from before the foundation of the world. You see, the father didn't start loving the son because of the incarnation. Or because of the son's sinless life and keeping the law of God perfectly in obedience. Or the father didn't start loving the son because the son came and did the work that the father gave him to do. The work of redemption. No, he, he loved him long before the fall. He loved him before the very foundation of the world. He loved him before he had made the world. And he loved him perfectly. And that perfection of love was toward the Son. And the Son had a perfect love to the Father. And the Father and Son loved the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit perfectly loved the Father and loved the Son. And the Bible teaches us that we are accepted in the one who's the perfect object of the Father's love from all eternity. Now, not everyone is found in Christ. We're not all children of God. It's true we're, true we're God's children by creation, by virtue of the fact that he made us and created us and provides for us, even though many are evil and wicked. Because he gives breath and life to all. And even though individuals are made in God's image, we're not all born again of the Spirit. We're not all genuinely saved. We're not all found in Christ. 
But there are a people who are his, not only by creation, but, but his by redemption. And the Bible is very clear that we only become a child of God by being born into God's family through a spiritual new birth. Remember what we read there in John chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now here's two important aspects of the Christian life, often neglected, sadly forgotten. One is the new birth. God imparts and fuses new life in dead sinners. Remember Paul saying to the church at Ephesus, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. It's the spirit of God that imparts new life. And therefore, because we're born of God, God becomes our heavenly father and we enter into a personal relationship with God. And therefore, because we're found in Christ, having got new life, we can trust in the father's love for us in Christ. And here's the second important aspect that's often forgotten. We've been adopted into God's family. God sovereignly chooses us to be his dear children. You think of that. Chosen in Christ for the foundation of the Lord. Chosen by the Father to be one of his dear children. I think of parents who go to pick a child to adopt them into their family. How do they pick? A lot of children are orphans. And it's good that a mommy and daddy wants to adopt the child into their family. How do they pick? Because they're attractive. Because they're cute. Because they've got a nice smile. Because they're smart. God doesn't pick us that way. God has chosen the sinful ones. The rebellious ones. And he chooses them in sovereign love. We can't begin to comprehend or understand something of God's love. And we'll never begin to understand God's love until we understand something also of the terrible depths of our own sinful depravity. And we'll never comprehend and understand something of God's love until we learn to stand at the cross, in the shadow of the cross, and grasp something of the nature and subject of Christ's atonement. Because that's at the very heart of Paul's teaching, Paul's thinking, Paul's theology. The cross of Christ is central to our understanding of the gospel. Listen to this verse again. But God commended his love toward us, not just demonstrated, but commended it. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's a fundamental question this morning. Are you born again of the Spirit of God? Was there a time in your life when your heart was warmed to Christ? Have you made a personal profession of Christ as Lord and Redeemer? Are you trusting in Christ alone for a full and free pardon? Do you know the wonder of a full and free justification? Have, do you know you've been adopted into God's family because you've got new life in Christ? And here's the evidence of it. You have a new desire to know Christ. You have a desire out of love for Christ to love him more. Love him intimately. You love his word, the scriptures of truth. You love his people, the saints of God. You love his day. It's the Sabbath day. You love righteousness. You, you now have a hatred for sin. You see, the foundation of Christ's example of love is to trust 
the atoning sacrifice for sins. The one who offered himself. The one who sacrificed himself for us. That's the foundation of the Christian's walk in love. Very quickly, I want you to think of the focus of the Christian's walk in love. He tells us, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also had loved us. You see, the Christian has to focus on the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father and the Father and Son's love for the Spirit and the Spirit's perfect love for the Father and the Son. Now, of course, it's true that every father has a special love for his own dear children. But you think of not just earthly fathers with a newborn son or daughter. You think of our heavenly father and his love for his son and his love for the spirit of God and vice versa. I've already told you it's, it's a perfect love. But when we think of our love for our children, our heavenly father loves his own much more. God the Father loved the Son perfectly, and the Son loved the Father perfectly, and so did the Holy Spirit in the Trinitarian relationship. You see, you've got to think of the love of God towards each other in that Trinitarian relationship. His love is transcendent, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. It's the most perfect and, and pure form of love. And the reality is we can't love perfectly. We, we don't love perfectly. The love that we feel even towards God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is, is not perfect. And yet the wonderful thing is, is God the Father continues to love us. And so does the Son. And so does the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2 and 4, we read the words, But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love, wherewith he has loved us. His great love. God demonstrates his great love to us because we're, we're in the beloved. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel God loves you. You're conscious of your own proneness to sin. You're conscious of your own weakness and depravity. Maybe you don't feel that God loves you because of situations in life that have come. Because of the sorrows that have laid hold upon your heart and mind. And you're down and you're depressed. And you're facing difficult circumstances. And what you're facing is hard to perceive and hard to understand and hard to grasp. And you're wondering, but, but in, in my sinful situation, in my particular sorrowful situation, how, how, how could I know that God loves me? Well, as I have encouraged you, you've got to stand at Calvary. You've got to come to the cross. You've got to think of Christ. Because it says in our text, as Christ also have loved us. That's what we're commanded to do. Think of what the Lord Jesus went through. Think of how he demonstrated and showed us how much God commended his love toward us. You see, we've got to know him as a God of love. Because it's written, God is love. And we've got to focus on the ways he's revealed that love to us in his word. And yes, you're not going to comprehend it all. But if you could learn this this morning, that love is real. And focus on that. And you rest in that love. He does love me. And here's the proof. 
Stand at the cross. I'm amazed at those that tell us, well, I believe that God's a God of love, but he's not the God of judgment. They don't know God. They haven't comprehended the love of God truly. For, for those that say God is not a God who'd put people in hell, not a God who hates sin, well, I have a message for them. He is a God of judgment who hates sin. He is a God who puts people in hell for all eternity. Why? Because God is love. Because his is a holy love. And therefore, because it's a holy love, he hates sin with a perfect hatred. And that's what Paul goes on to deal with. Remember what we said, here's the second part of this outworking of this command, this comprehensive command to walk in love. But he mentions certain things from verse 2 right down to verse uh, 7. And it's the perversion of love today that we're witnessing all around us. If you want to know that God is love, and that love is real, and rest in that, you need to focus on this. Stand at the cross of Christ. Look into his face. Think of who he is and what he's doing. You think of Calvary. And despite your sinfulness, and despite your sorrowful situation, you focus on the Christian's walk in love. God loves me in Christ. We were singing there in that uh, lovely hymn, uh, 300 and... Um, 83, love beyond our human comprehending, love of God in Christ, how can it be? This will be my theme and never ending, great redeeming love of Calvary. And that's the second point. And here's the third point this morning, and I'll try to be brief. I want you to think of the features of the Christian's walk in love. You see, to walk in love, you must grasp the biblical understanding of what love is. If I said to you this morning, I love sirloin steak, or I love the beef burgers that, that come from the cow, I might say, well, well, I love my cat. I had a cat called Jerry, a lovely black cat, and it disappeared. I could say, I love my wife this morning, and that would be true. I could say, I love my car, Right? Now, you see, all of those things that I've mentioned, steak, cat, wife, car, they're all different aspects of the outworking of what we feel and think in our heart and mind. But I want to tell you this morning that love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not kind of a, a magical touch that I have for a time and then it's gone. All right? You see... The reality is that we who are finite creatures, sinful creatures, prone to error, we cannot really begin to imitate God's love until we understand and grasp what that love is. And the supreme demonstration of that love is only found at the cross. Look at our text. And walk in love as Christ also have loved us. And the minute he mentioned loved us, he adds this. And hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You think of 
Jesus Christ and the cross. Jesus Christ as God's only begotten Son, given up his very life for us at the cross. And that, I put it to you, is the greatest demonstration of God's love. And once you begin to grasp and understand that, then you can begin to understand the greatness and the wonder of what true love really is. And you'll discover this is not a feeling. This is a fact that's real. And I can rest. I can rejoice in this. Let's look at these things very quickly. I want you to think of the sincerity of Christ's love. It says, as Christ also have loved us. Not just the Father loves us, but Christ also. That's the word also is there. Christ also loved us. And here's the proof. And has given himself for us. You see, Christ just didn't love in word. He just didn't come and say, well, you know what? You sinful creatures, I love you. But, but he demonstrated that indeed in an action. There's no hypocrisy. There was no holding back. You see the words given himself for us, it literally means, literally involves a handing of himself over. You think of that moment when he handed himself over and allowed Judas to come and kiss him on the cheek and say, this is he of whom I speak. And then he allowed himself to be taken by the Jewish authorities. And then he allowed himself to be brought before Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate. And he allowed himself to be handed over unto death, even the death of the cross. He, he desired it. He, he, he wanted it. He, he, he willed it. Remember what we read in John chapter 1, uh, sorry, John chapter 10 and verse uh, 17. And the Lord Jesus said this uh, in relation to himself. Uh, listen to these words. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. The sincerity of Christ's love. Notice something else. The sacrifice of Christ's love. Not just sincere, but sacrificial. And hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. The word offering there has to do with the meat and the meal offering in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But it wasn't just a, an offering. It was and a sacrifice. Now, I want you to see that. I want you to grasp that. Because true love is self-sacrificial. And true love involves a caring commitment that seeks the highest good of the one that is loved. And in order to save us and sanctify us and strengthen us and supply our need and succor us in our time of difficulty and sorrow and illness, Christ sacrificed himself for us. Gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice for us. Not just an example. Not just so we could be benefited by him and be blessed by him you see the wonderful thing about the the christian gospel is this that the old testament sacrificial system is a wonderful picture of the work of christ christ is the sacrifice that involved the shedding of a blood it wasn't just a, a meat and meal offering but the sacrifice involved the shedding of the blood taking the lamb taking the knife and shedding its blood and that's what Christ died, because the Bible says in Hebrews 9 and 22, without the shedding of blood is 
No remission. Christ wasn't just wounded. He just didn't die accidentally. He had a nice letter from a lady, and she emphasized this very point. It's not the wounds of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that saves us. And that's very important that we grasp that. And we want to emphasize that. As Jesus Christ died a once and for all sacrifice for sin, he took our sins upon himself. He was made to be a sin offering. He took the guilt and punishment of his people. He bore the wrath of God. And it's only in Christ that we can learn to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's only in Christ that we can experience and express this sacrificial love one to another. Greater love of no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Christ didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. And only in Christ can we lay aside our feeling of selfishness, pride, wanting our rights. It's only as we practice this sacrificial love that's found in Christ can we become Christ-like. Notice also here very quickly the supremacy of Christ's love. Think of the words, as Christ also. You see, only in Christ... Christ's love surpasses anything we can imagine. Can you imagine the love of God the Father and the love of God the Son? The love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. Can you imagine the love of the Father and the Son for, for true believers in Christ? That infinite, eternal, unchangeable love. Our minds can't take it in. We can't fully comprehend it. We can't grasp it. Who can know the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of his love? How can we really know the love of Christ? It's, it's a great love. It's a pure love. It's not just a feeling of emotion. It's not just part of being in a physical relationship. It's much more than that. This love is caring. This love is committed. This love is conspicuous. This, this love is consecration. It's real love that's on display. It's supreme love. As Christ also have loved us. It's a sanctifying love. It sets us apart. Ephesians 5 and 25. Remember what he says here. Husbands love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it. Christ's love for his people is a special, saving, sanctifying love directed toward the individual, directed to the body of Christ collectively. Do remember that this love rejoices with the truth. Remember this love unifies the people of God. This love exhorts and corrects us to be holy and blameless and put away our sinful behavior. This love of God does something in the human heart. It does something in the human head where the individual Christian loves righteousness and hates sin, discovers that truth is expressed in love, discovers that unity is expressed in love, and a unity without true love is not true unity. And truth without true love it is not Real truth. The two go together, you see. It has a sanctifying aspect. And let me finish with this. The speciality of Christ's love. Think of this as we finish. And walk in love. Do you know that Paul uses the word walk seven times? Two and two, we walk in trespasses and sins. Two ten. We walk in good deeds that God has foreordained for us. 
4 and 1, 4, 17, 5 and 2, walk in love. You see, uh, 5 and 8, walk as children of the light, uh, walk as, as those that are wise, 5, 15. The fifth reference is to walk in love. And what is a walk? It's a step by step. It's making slow and steady progress in a journey. Getting from A to B, not by running, not by skipping or hopping, but by walk one foot forward to the next foot. And it covers the entire man of our life. We're to walk in all honesty. We're to walk in gentleness. We're to walk in patience. Think of the Christian husband and the Christian wife. Husbands are to love their wives, commanded three times in this chapter. Why? Because wives are so unloving, we have to be reminded of it. No. Because wives are also commanded to love their husbands in the book of Titus. Because it's so important in the outworking of that relationship. The husband and wife relationship is the bedrock of the home, the bedrock of society. The word walk means a continual walk. It's not easy. It's hard, especially if you're walking in the giant's causeway. But this is a, a lifelong process. We, we're, we're to grow in this. We're, we're to focus on the love of Christ. We're to love one another in Christ. We're to know Christ in an intimate, personal way. We're to bring glory and honor to him. We're to honor him, to, to live to please God. And to seek the highest good of all who are found in the body of Christ. That's all tied up in the speciality of Christ's love. I commend this thought to you today. Walk in love. Here's the Christian's walk in love. Remember the foundation. I walk because I'm a child of God. I'm born again. I'm adopted into God's family. And I focus on the love of God in Christ. God the Father loves me. It's real. I can rest in that. And here's the features. As Christ also have loved us. This love of Christ is sincere. It's sacrificial. It's supreme. It's sanctifying. And it's special. May the Lord give us grace to walk in love.